0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition, and we've got
1: a very special show for you today.
0: All the way from Sherman Oaks, California, welcome to the show, Tom Dreesen.
1: And thank you, Victor. It's my first time on the show, and my concern is that when we're finished, it'll probably be my last. You'll say goodbye, Tom, and we don't need you anymore. But
0: <laughs> Oh, I don't think so. Well, it's great to have you here. I mean, after 60 plus appearances on The Tonight Show. I think we can probably get you more than one appearance on the Real Estate Espresso podcast. So great to have you here. You have quite a journey in your past, and you've just put out a book, and I just just want to hear your whole story. It's so fascinating. You've done so many amazing things. I don't know, where do you want to start?
1: In my career, this is my 51st year in show business as a stand-up comedian. I'm an actor, of course, like most stand-up comedians, I've done a lot of movies and TV shows, Murder, She Wrote and Columbo's and WKRP Cincinnati and uh, Facts of Life, and I I can go on and on on all the shows. Also in movies, Trouble with the Curve with Clint Eastwood and Spaceballs, Mel Brooks put me in that film and the mini film. Anyhow, but I'm a stand-up comedian, first, last and always. I've made over 500 appearances on national TV, including, as you pointed out, 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. And over 50 on Letterman and even hosted the Letterman show when David didn't feel good. So every time I'd see him, I'd say, you don't look so hot. You need to take some time off. But I've had a wonderful career. I toured for years. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows were the last. We started out in Chicago. And so in 1969 and 1975, we toured the nation as the first black and white comedy team. And there were no comedy clubs in those days. So we worked all black clubs in the north and the south. What they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, Black-owned, Black-operated nightclubs. And we worked all white nightclubs too, but we were really groundbreakers in, in, in as much as this had never happened before. And at that time, in 1969, uh, the America was in turmoil. Not that it isn't now, but the Viet- Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Tim just got out of college. Students uh, were protesting the Vietnam War all over America. African-Americans were rioting in almost every major city in America, including the city in Harvey, Illinois, a suburb on the south side of Chicago, where I grew up at, one of the largest riots in the country. In the middle of all this, Tim and I were trying to make America laugh. We didn't preach. We just went and did stand-up comedy. But anywhere there was racial tension, we would go. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did colleges and high schools even. And we just went to make the kids laugh. And consequently, people have said to us so many times, that they learn more about race relations, watching Tim and I perform than they did from any book they read or anything. Just watching these two guys get along and have fun together. I can't tell you how many times, Victor, that we went somewhere and somebody would come up to us afterward, a black kid, and he'd say, I got a white friend and I'd like to reach out to him. But if I do, the brothers are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tim, I'm going to reach out to my white friend and then vice versa, a white kid would come up, say, you know, I have a black friend. Keep in mind, this is 1969, you know, in 1771, they'd say, and I'd like to reach out to them, but if I do the white guys, you're going to call me names. And, but after watching you and Tim, I'm going to do that. So Tim and I, to this day, we wrote a book 15 years ago called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. But to this day, we treasure that more than any kind of award you might have won. We just want to make people laugh. We figured if people can sit down and laugh together, maybe they could live together. Some people are raised that way and some weren't. I grew up poor, which takes me back to what happened. I grew up very poor. I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. There was If you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in it. If a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. It was a rat-infested, roach-infested shack, eight kids. At one time, both my parents were alcoholic. So I, as a little boy, I grew up in a neighborhood that was steel mills and factories and a lot of blue-collar people. And the mantra in the neighborhood was, you only deserve in life what you work for. And so I, as a little boy, eight years old, I got a shoeshine box, and I'm out trudging through the snow every night, shining shoes on all the bars to help feed my brothers and sisters. And none of this do I regret. I had, I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner. I had a paper route and, and none of this do I regret. And I'll get to that in a moment too. From Tim and Tom, I went on to become, the team stayed together six years. And then I went on to become a single standup comedian and struggled like anybody else. Coming out to the West Coast, my wife left me three times. She hated show business and didn't want me in it. She didn't marry me when I was in show business. She married me when I was a working guy just out of the service. And that's who she wanted to be with. And so we had a tough time. But finally, I convinced her to stay with me until and, and we became very successful. And, and, and at that time, we got a divorce. And she lived happily ever after. <laughs> but to get back to what I was saying, I'm a stand-up comedian. First, last, and always. That's who I'll always be. That's what I was put on this planet to be. The first time I ever went on stage with Tim Reed, something that I had written got a laugh. And it was like an epiphany, like the dark, like you see those B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun burst through. And my whole being went, oh, yes, this is what I want. I want to be a stand-up comedian. The thought that you can make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. Uh, that you could get paid to make people laugh. And and Victor, this is true. It was a Friday night. I couldn't sleep that night. I went home and I couldn't sleep all night long because I found finally what I had been praying for that, that find something that, that worked that I love. I went to church the next morning. There was no service. It was a Saturday morning a church where I had been an altar boy and where I sang in a choir when I was a little boy and where my mother sang in a choir when she was a little girl. But I got on my knees. There was no one in the church at all. I prayed. I said, God, I now know what I want. I want to be a stand-up comedian. If you can let me make my living as a stand-up comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charities. I'm making all those promises, and all my dreams have come true, as I stated earlier. All the things that I've been able to do, and all my dreams have come true. And so, 50 years later, that was September 1969 when I sat knelt in that church. 50 years later, in September 2019, I went back to that church and I gave the sermon on Sunday on the power of prayer. And I gave a sermon on the power of prayer. And I basically just said to the audience, look, how many of you out there ever thought about someone and you hadn't seen in a long time? And lo and behold, the phone rings and it's that person. I said, you hadn't seen someone in a long time. You're walking down the street, you turn the corner and you run into that person. And you say, Victor, I was just thinking about you. And how many has that happened to? And they all raised their hands. I said, if human beings can transfer thought And obviously we can. Then how much thought can a supreme being transfer, can be transferred to a supreme being? So that's the power of prayer. And and then this, and then we'll get into another discussion. Even though I'm a stand-up comedian, first, last, and always, I've read hundreds of books on the powers of the mind. So I give motivation talks and have been doing this for years on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I elaborate on each one of those subjects And and then I have a QA and a and, of course, everything. So whenever you're ready, I'll tell you how I use those sciences to go from the lowest of low problems to being a very successful stand-up comedian.
0: Well, one of the things I'm very present to is that unlike a lot of people in show business who often get wrapped up in the whole notion of the fame and the adulation of fans and all the rest, you strike me as someone who's incredibly grounded, someone who is not caught up in all of that. You are here to serve and to contribute. That's a very different posture from so many people that I encounter.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. When I talked to young comedians, I talked to them, I said, look, when I was reading all these books on the powers of the mind and when I was in the service, I was a high school dropout. I was going to high school with holes in my shoes and and raggedy poor... And embarrassed, I dropped out of high school at 16. At 17, I went into the Navy. I ended up getting a high school diploma in the Navy, and I went to junior college nights when I came out. But while in the service, I began to read all these positive mental attitude books, starting with Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, A Guide to Confident Living, W. Clement Stone's The Positive Mental Attitude, Psycho-Cybernetics, and a book that really changed my whole life was The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. But while I was reading all these books, I tell young comedians all the time that I was, I, I kept reading about the yin and the yang, the yin and the yang. And I didn't quite understand what this yin and yang was. Then the more I read, the more I realized that we're born pure spirit. We're not born ego. We, when we're born, we don't know if we're boy or girl, black or white, Jew or Gentile. We're just a spirit. And we love everything that loves us. And we gravitate to love and love back and return. So we're just a pure spirit. By the time we're three or four years old, well-intentioned adults sometimes misinformed, start to program our computer. Little boys do this, little girls do that. We Catholics do this, we Jews do this, whatever. They, they program our minds. And by the time you're four or five years old, you're starting to develop an image of yourself based upon their information. Thus, the ego is formed. And the rest of your life, your yin and yang is your ego and your Holy Spirit. Call it what you want, your center or whatever. Your ego and your spirit. Your ego and your spirit. Now, your ego demands that you walk down the street and get mobbed, that people uh, fawn all over you. Your ego has an insatiable appetite. It cannot get enough success, money, fame, power, fortune. It simply can't get enough and it'll drive you to destruction if you allow it. Your spirit, conversely, is like the song of the 70s. All I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. That song by the Hollies. That's what your spirit needs. So you'll find yourself, if you're in this business, in show business, ego-driven, I guarantee you it'll drive you to a place where you'll end up feeling like a failure. But if you're in for the spirit, I love making people laugh. I wrote a poem many years ago called The Sound of Laughter. I won't do it for you. But the first lines are, as far back as I can remember or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. So if your laughter is healing and you're making people feel better for having had your service or in any endeavor, then you're in it for all the right reasons, for the spiritual reason. Now, not the, you don't let the ego drive you. You're driving down the street. A guy pulls in front of you and slam, you slam on your brakes and you start cursing him. Were you blind? Sin? That's your ego. Your spirit goes, whoa, I'm so glad no one got hurt. Are you okay? I'm okay. Okay. Have a good day. That's your spirit. And so follow your spirit. Thank you for your compliment. And I went a long way for that answer. But
0: yeah. Oh, no, I love that. So you just wrote a book, Still Standing, maybe a little bit of a pun on stand-up comedy. Tell us a bit about the story. What's the genesis of the book and what's it all about?
1: Well, Still Standing, as you point out, it's a double entendre. I'm a stand-up comedian for 51 years. However, I've been knocked down in my life many times, you know, and I keep getting back up. When you read the book, it's called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. When you read the book, you'll see I was knocked down physically, but I got back up. Knocked down, rejected like anybody else in any endeavor, so many times in my life, but I kept getting back up and why I kept getting back up and how I kept getting back up. And that's in the book, Still Standing. So I wrote it because through the years, touring with Tim Reed, then later the John, Johnny Carson shows, the Tonight shows. After I did my first appearance on the Tonight show, I started doing all kinds of shows, Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train. I'm the only white comedian Never ever do Soul Train because I have an album out in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy's Crazy, <laughs> doing $20,000 Pyramid in Hollywood Squares. So every time I would do these shows, I would always, anything funny or poignant happened, I'd sit down and I'd go back and I'd journal that, you know, and I was accumulating all these stories. And then I toured for three years with Sammy Davis Jr. as his opening act. Then I toured with Smokey Robinson for years. I toured with Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight the Pips. I toured with uh, Mac Davis, Tony Orlando and Don, Frankie Avalon, so many other people. And, and, and whenever funny or poignant things would happen, I would write it down. And eventually I toured for almost 14 years as the opening act for Frank Sinatra. And that was in rarefied air. And so the book is about that. It, it, it's about a little boy shining shoes on his hands and knees in bars on the South side of Chicago and Frank Sinatra's on the jukebox. And then it takes you to that little boy one day carrying Frank Sinatra's coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So it's the journey from there, from the little boy hearing Sinatra for the first time on the jukebox and on his hands and knees in a bar to one day carrying Frank Sinatra's coffin out of the church in Beverly Hills. And all the lessons I learned along the way, all the joys I had and all the heartaches and all the sorrows. And there's a couple of times in the book you want to know how did this guy ever overcome that? But I did and I'm still standing. I'm still here.
0: We're in a very different time today. You know, at the time there was only one tonight show. If Johnny Carson didn't invite you on the show, there was really no other way to get that exposure. But today, if you want to act, you act. If you want to write, you write. You don't have to wait for a publisher to anoint you. You don't necessarily you don't need to get on Oprah in order to get exposure. If you were to go into the business today, would you be approaching it any differently?
1: You'd have to approach it a hundred percent different. In my day, as you pointed out, in 1970, when the comedy team stood up, I ended up on the West Coast. And In 1975, I came out here because Johnny Carson left New York in 1972 to come out here to Burbank, NBC Burbank. One appearance on The Tonight Show and your whole life changed. All the comics gravitated out here because Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show and the next day it got a sitcom. So and I migrated out here like all the other comedians. I ended up Having a tough time. I, I house sat for a girl singer. She was gone on the road for three weeks and I had gotten her a job one time. And so she said to me, You can house sit my house. I didn't, I'm from Chicago. When somebody sits on a house, they're going to burglarize it. So I didn't know what the house sitting meant. But anyhow, you but stay at her house. I did that for three weeks while she was on the road. I thought for sure I'd get on at the comedy store right away and then try to get the Tonight Show to come and look at me. That didn't happen anyhow it ended up I couldn't stay there anymore she had a boyfriend he was a very jealous guy all that's in the book too so I ended up staying in an old there was an old Nash Rambler out in the alley where it was up on blocks and the front seat came down then I stayed in that car almost a month hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard begging to work for free and wash up at a gas station anyhow but begged to work for free at the comedy store and I finally got on and, and it took a year for me to Get to Tonight Show to come and see me, but that was the pathway to stardom for comedians. One appearance on the Tonight Show, your whole life changed. You know. So today it's a totally different thing. Today it's a social media. If you want to get exposure, there isn't one show today that could launch you into stardom. Oftentimes these shows where they The Voice or something like that, America's Got Talent. Sometimes people go on that show and they have enough talent to get over on that show, but then to be launched out into be a headliner, they haven't had the experience of paying the dues. So it's too soon. So in our day, by the time you got to the tonight show, you pretty much had an act. So today, social media that you've got to get on, you got to learn how to work Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and all those things to get to an audience.
0: Absolutely. So your book is a story about resilience. As I think about our audience, real estate developers real estate investors. I mean, that's a game of resilience as well. I mean, think back this past decade when we had to go through the whole upheaval of the post-2008 financial crisis. Some people exited the business and maybe they're working at Walmart now. Others picked up and figured out how to work it out, start again, and make it back 10 times
1: over. By the way, that's my motivation speeches. My first thing I talk to students about or corporate America is perception. All of life is about perception. I open with telling them, I lived in a shack, eight brothers and sisters, raggedy poor, holes in my shoes, no bathtub, no shower, no hot water. It was a shack that I explained about. I say to the class, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me, because that's the way I perceive it. Both my parents are alcoholic, great thing. I learned from that, I learned a lot of lessons from that. All of life is about perception, it's how you perceive it. I, I tell the students, I make an analogy, I say a little boy goes in a backyard, he's got a bat and a ball. And he, told, he said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he throws a ball up in the air, and he swings, and he misses. He said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. He throws the ball up the second time, and he swings, and he misses. He said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. He throws it up the third time, and he swings, and he misses. He said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. <laughs> Nothing changed, but his perception. You know, And all of life is about perception. And, and it, it doesn't matter that where you've been. It matters where you're going. I think that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you react to it. I, I tell the class, you're a winner. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story that I'm sure I could tell on your show, but if you can't, you can cut it out. But I was giving a motivation talk at an all-male college in Northern California. And I was joking with the kids and the students, and they were all 18, 19 years old. I'm joking with the young boys At that time, there was a kid that wouldn't leave his family's home. He was 32 years old, a man, and his mother and dad had to go to court to get him out. You may have read about that, Victor, but his mother and father had to go to court to get him out of the house. You know, they had to get a court order after eight years. So I said to the students, how long do you think you should live with your parents? And one boy raised his hand and he said, two or 50 or 60. I said, why do you say that? He said, we didn't ask to be here. And I said to some of the students, and how many of you believe that? And a lot of them raised their hands. We didn't ask to be here. I said, I don't want to give you a biology lesson. But when the male and the female make love, from the male comes 5 million seeds. Did you know that? I said, 2.5 million die instantly. The other millions die along the way. And soon there's only 100,000 seeds left. And then there's 50,000. Finally, there's only 100 seeds left. Finally, there's only 5 seeds left. Four, three, two, one. you. And I point to them, You. Don't ever tell me you didn't ask to be here. You fought to be here. And and I said, applaud yourselves. I'm in a room full of winners. You all won. Five million to one and you're here. You were born a winner. Don't let anybody ever tell you you were a victim. You're a victor. Because victim is a wonderful place to hide. It's a safe place to hide. It's not my fault. Both my parents were alcoholic. I lived in a shack. I ended up in prison. It's not my fault. If I'd had the opportunity like other people. And I say, that's BS. You're a victor you know, and, and you were born a victor, you're not a victim. And don't let anybody put you in that victim mode because then you you don't have to secede because it isn't your fault. So again, all of life is about perception. And then I'll take them to another place where I, I talk about visualization because that's what really, that book, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy really changed my life. Whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve was written thousands of years ago. It's almost biblical in nature, but, whatever the mind can see and believe. And I didn't quite understand that, how the subconscious mind works. It works off of images and emotion. Whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. I'll say, you say one time, what was his name? Todd on what was his name? What was his name? You're thinking, what was his name? Two days later at Starbucks, you say, give me a cup of coffee, Tom Driesen. Where did that come from? Once you gave the subconscious mind a problem with an image and emotion, whatever the mind can see and believe, once you gave your subconscious mind that picture and the emotion, it won't rest till it finds a solution. So you must see the end result. And it taught me that you do that just before you go to sleep at night and just when you wake up in the morning. Because when just before you go to sleep at night, your, your subconscious mind is most at rest and your conscious mind is more open to suggestion. That's how they hypnotize you. They put your, your conscious mind to sleep and your subconscious mind is open to suggestion and they tell you hop like a rabbit and you hop a rabbit. But you had to see the end result. So I would see myself on the Johnny Carson show. I would see Johnny Carson when I was struggling, when I was sleeping in the car. I would see myself on Johnny Carson. I'd see it, I'd feel it, and I'd believe it. Now, I didn't see myself doing stand-up comedy because in those days you did stand-up comedy, and then when Johnny called you over to sit down, you had arrived. If you did stand-up comedy on the Tonight Show to America, you had arrived. But to my industry, you hadn't arrived till Johnny called you over to sit and talk. So I would see myself sitting next to Johnny and Johnny saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy. I would see it, I'd feel it, and I'd believe it. Because I know if I was sitting with Johnny, it already succeeded over uh, there doing stand-up. I, when I'm sleeping in the abandoned car and couldn't get on at the comedy star, I'm seeing it I'm feeling, I believe it. I hold this picture up that your audience can't see, but I hold this picture up you know, to, in, to my class, it's Johnny Carson laughing at me. That's the picture I image in my car and my mind when I was sleeping in the car. Nothing can become a reality, Victor, unless it's thought first. You see that end result, getting the real estate, the real estate salesman of the year, or whatever it is, seeing yourself, getting that check, seeing it, feeling it and believe it. Now the subconscious mind said, oh, I know where you want me to go. Your body is no more than a vehicle. It's the vehicle you were given. This is what you were given. This is your vehicle. The pilot who lands at 747 every day in Boston, from LA to Boston, he doesn't drive to the airport in LA, 100 miles an hour, run out to the tarmac, run aboard the aircraft, take off down the runway and say, now, where am I going? He files a flight plan. See it, feel it, and believe it. You just filed a flight plan for your vehicle. So that's, again, visualization. Something interesting, Dr. Charles Garfield Once he's done extensive research on peak performance, both in athletics and in business. And although he had a doctorate in mathematics, he decided to go back and get another PhD in the field of psychology and the study of characteristics of peak performers. One of the main things his research showed was that almost all of the world-class athletes and other peak performers are visualizers. They see it, they feel it, and they experience it before they actually do it. They begin with the end in mind. And that book really changed my, my life. And I, I talked to the class about that, about visualization. And then later, self-talk. If you want me to go into that, I will, Victor. If, uh, it's your call.
0: Well, I love that. So yeah, let's take a moment. Let's talk a little bit about self-talk. And then uh, love to hear how people can get a copy of your book.
1: The most important person you'll ever talk to is yourself, self-talk. There's a great book by, his name is Shad Helmstetter. It's What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. When I say to a class, sometimes I say, I want you to get physically fit. you know how to do that? And they, of course, one word, exercise. Say, I want you to get mentally fit. They stare at me. And I say, one word, exercise. You want to get phys- mentally fit? Exercise the mind. You can exercise the mind by, there's so many mental exercises. Day by day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. A couple of times in my life, you were reading a book where I was knocked down health-wise, but I would always say day by day and every way I'm getting better and better day by day and every way I'm getting better and better. And I'd say that different ways. I've studied acting. So I sometimes would put that the, the emphasis on a different word day by day and every way I'm getting better and better day by day and every way I'm getting better and better. I'd say it five times before you go to sleep and when you get up in the morning. I, I kept cards with me, three by five cards with me in my car. And if I get stopped at a stop sign or stuck in traffic or something, I would pull out my Monday card. And all day Monday, this was, would be my, my mental exercise. All my thoughts create healthiness within me. My mind dwells only on those thoughts, which create more harmony, balance, and well-being within me and the world around me. I'd say that all day long. It was my Monday. Tuesday would be it. I control the thoughts I choose. No thought at any time can dwell in my mind without my approval or permission. I'd say that on Tuesday. This, I'll do one more for you. My, this is Wednesday. My mind is constantly in tune with the positive. It is bright, cheerful, enthusiastic, and full of good, positive thoughts and ideas. So that's how I would exercise either a Thursday a Friday or Saturday. Again, the most important person you'll ever talk to is yourself. You, your brain, your mind is like a garden. I tell students, picture your mind a garden, and you're going to plant flowers in your garden, positive thoughts. So you plant the flowers. What if weeds grow? Would you allow the weeds to grow in your garden? You would dig the weeds out and you'd replant flowers. Negative thoughts swirl the universe. They come through my mind like anybody else's. I don't have to let that seed grow. I'll grab it and say, oh, oh, I don't want to think that way. Cancel. I would cancel, delete on your computer, cancel the negative thought and replace it with a positive thought. I would replace it with a flower. So anyhow, the greatest discovery of my generation is that a man can change his life simply by changing his thoughts. As human beings, our greatness lies not so much in being able to remake the world as it is being able to remake ourselves. You can't change the world; you can only change yourself, and, and that's the end of self-talk. There's so many more things I could say about self-talk, and and I do in my classroom lecture or my for corporate America. But finally, I close with and now close is develop a sense of humor. The greatest gift that God can bestow upon a human being is a sense of humor. And a sense of humor is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings or misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own, to laugh at yourself. It, that's such a great gift and you can pass it on to your children. Whenever you do something dumb or stupid, come home and share that with them. Say, what did I take what I did today? This is the dumbest thing. My kids will tell you stories about me that I told them of dumb things I did. And they now will tell me stories about dumb things they did. Laugh at yourself. For you guys out there, something that might interest you, I was on Hollywood Squares one time. I did that so many times. But one of the questions was, of 3,500 women polled, what's the number one characteristic they look for in a man? And it was a sense of humor. A guy who didn't take himself too serious. Women love to be with a man who makes them laugh. And, and men love to be with a woman that makes them laugh. If, if your spouse, if you've got a spouse that makes you laugh, I guarantee you have a happy home, and a happy home will, will be a long-term marriage. People will love you for it. When you, you know, poke fun at your own blunders and all those misfortunes, people will love you for it, and you'll be better off for it. There was a great actress named Ruth Gordon. She, she on Broadway for years, she was a playwright. She won Tony Awards. She won all sorts of awards. In fact, won the Academy Award in a movie called Rosemary's Baby, a brilliant actress, She was like 78 years old or 76 years old. I was on the Merv Griffin show with her one night, and Merv Griffin picked up a piece of paper and he said, Ruth, when you first went on Broadway, this is what your reviews were. I'm reading these reviews, Ruth. It said she can't act, she's not pretty, and she has terrible stage presence. He said, how on earth did you survive? She said, I ignored the facts. (laughs) 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 A person like that. We saw a tombstone a while back, a grave, where a woman had a parking meter there. And on it, it said, time expired. She must have been a wonderful woman. I just saw a photo. I said, what a wonderful woman. I bet she was a great wife, a great mom. A sense of humor is the greatest gift that God can bestow upon a human being. But it's learning how to laugh at yourself. Don't take yourself too serious. And you pick up and move on.
0: I love that. This is a, a question about what it's like being on stage when you bomb in front of the estate And you have a joke that you thought was funny and the audience is silent. What happens when you do that at home and you say something to your spouse that you hoped was funny and it's not and you get that stare?
1: You own own it. You say, (laughs) I thought that was funny, but that's the reason why, honey, I'm not appearing at Caesar's Palace this weekend, but I'm appearing here in this kitchen with you right now or whatever. You you can always come up. Again, there's a great opportunity. You just told a joke at the end of the lap. You know, don't get mad at her. You know, just you poke fun at yourself. Say, you know, I guess uh, I'm no I'm no threat to uh, to uh, Dave Chappelle or Tom Reese or whoever, you, whatever comedian is your favorite comedian. There you go. I, I guess I'll be you no know, taking over their career. You have fun with failure, and then you pick yourself up, as Frank saying, That's life. You pick yourself up and get back in the race. But what a joy it is to be around people who don't take themselves too serious. When we comedians get around, when I get around with us, if I was working in Vegas and all the comedians would meet at the Riviera Coffee Shop, sometimes it'd be six or seven comedians: Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, David Brennan, me, whoever was in town. We talk, We never talked about. I killed the audience tonight. I got a standing ovation. We never, we talk about nice. We bombed. Hey, we, we love hearing stories about when it was bad out there when you, because th- that shows your sense of humor, you know?
0: Absolutely. Well, well Tom, if folks want to get a copy of a book, what's the best way?
1: Amazon.com will be at your house in two days. Also Barnes and Noble. It's called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. I have to tell you, I'm so proud. It's got over 150 five-star reviews right now on Amazon. Oh, fantastic. Are, It's got Chicago Tribune. A lot of people give giving me great reviews. And I'm glad because I, I want people to laugh. I want people to enjoy my journey. And it's a triumphant journey. There's some down times in there, but don't we all? Life isn't fair, Victor. I don't care how you look at it. Life is not fair, is it? But that's what life is. It isn't fair. So we, how we deal through those times.
0: Well, Tom, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing the wisdom. And for the listeners at home, definitely go out and get a copy of Still Standing on your favorite platform, whether it's Amazon or the Real Live Bookstore, although it's probably closed these days. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great
1: things happen. we will talk to you again tomorrow.